Let me tell you a story about someone who was very special. Laurel Pettigrew, destined to be the savior of magic kind. What? Crap. Mmm, <laughs> not so much. And that's where our story begins. Fate is about to send someone transformative into my life. Third Eye, an Audible original. Created by Felicia Day and starring a full cast, including Day, Sean Astin, Will Wheaton, London Hughes, Lily Pichu, and more. And featuring Neil Gaiman as the narrator. Welcome to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. Tell us all news about a man whose mind and career has careened far and wide and upside down, whose computers are seared with crimes against grammar, whose typographical aggressions are legion, whose words flow into the very mouth of time, and more than a few bottles. A man who actually owns a typewriter, and perhaps even and now your host john king welcome to episode 606 of the world's greatest writing podcast on today's show i speak with writer actor and producer felicia day about her new audiobook masterpiece third eye which is a hysterically funny fantasy epic that deep down has heart. I hope your holidays are doing tolerably well this year, and that your solitude is not more than you can bear, and that your social engagement is also not more than you could bear. Unlike many academics who teach creative writing, I don't have a long break, which means my break is like a cracked hourglass, and time is running out as soon as the break begins, which kind of sort of has, both begun and broken. But I have worked on my horror screenplay once again, which I hope to finish before my labors resume in earnest in the second week of January. And I have spent some time with friends, including going west in Orlando, the city beautiful, to spend time with my friend, the Disney historian Todd James Pierce, including a dinner at Steakhouse 71, which proved wonderful most for this non-foodie. The sauces and the bacon and eggs appetizer, plus the sauces for the steak tasted so rich they made me feel drunk. Is that what foodies experience all the time? There was also a nice gathering at the Kerouac Project of Orlando's board, and I discussed with Mariah Russo the imbalance between wanting to work more in our art while feeling burdened by the non-art content of our lives. Some writers, when writing becomes the sole day job, produce at least a book every year. Some, however, do not. Perhaps we who do not write creatively for the day job are close to being as productive as we can be already. I do find my anger at not getting enough writing done, I get itchy after even a short while, helps drive me to get more done despite the pressures of everything else. Of course, not having enough time for our art might make it seem more worthy so long as we keep that art in mind. Perhaps that is my New Year's resolution. Just to keep the work in mind. Reread what I've written. To keep the brain primed like a pump. 
should any precipitation come forward. Can I get 58 pages of screenplay written in the next two weeks? Step one is to reread the 32 pages I have. Step two is, what was I talking about? Perhaps you can relate. All right, let's get to my talk with the wonderful Felicia Day. And now, the interview of the day. Felicia Day is a screenwriter, actor, and author who dazzled audiences in the early days of web series with the Guild, a loving satire of World of Warcraft addiction, then wowed audiences as Penny and Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, then entranced audiences, or absolutely me, as King of Forrester in the recent incarnation of Mystery Science Theater 3000. This summary omits over 100 IMD credits as an actor. Besides writing the Guild and being a writer on Mystery Science Theater, she's the author of You're Never Weird on the Internet, almost, a memoir, and the self-help book, Embrace Your Weird, Face Your Fears, and Unleash Creativity. Her newest piece is an epic yet comic fantasy audiobook, Third Eye. Laurel thought she was fulfilling her destiny when she faced off in a magic battle with the evil wizard Tybus, but she was very wrong. Her magic shop, Third Eye, now a tourist trap in San Francisco with a vampire and fairy as tenants, is the locus of many complications after a normie full of secrets passes through its doors, seeking Laurel as a magical mentor. Many painful and hilarious complications ensue. Third Eye is presented like a radio play with voice actors that include Will Wheaton, Felicia Day herself, and this new person to the scene, Neil Gaiman, as the narrator. I can attest that this story has immense wit and heart, my favorite cocktail of reading and listening sensation. Felicia, welcome to the Drunken Odyssey. Sean, thank you. Can I take that summary and use it? Because it was probably the best summary of Third Eye that I've heard. And I was like, oh, I really like that line. Who wrote that? It must, it was not in the copy. So thank you. (laughs) Well, some of it's slightly cribbed from, yeah, the audible summary, but. You gave it your magic. I condensed it. Great. Well, you did a great job. I'm I'm really wonderful at helping write copy after it's no longer needed. I'm an expert at that. Listen, the hardest (laughs) thing to write is a summary of the back of a DVD. It really is the hardest thing. And sometimes when I'm stuck writing, I just force myself to write a synopsis that's that short. And it really gets you to figure out what the heck you're writing because sometimes you're just lost and if you have to distill it into a really concentrated broth like that you can't get lost as much well i've also found that helpful when trying to actually write the thing itself if i feel stuck yeah that's what i meant yeah and i can't get in scene then it's like okay what's the bigger picture and then eventually my brain relaxes and i'll be writing scene yeah so actually i need to do that on my next project which i still haven't started writing which plagues me with guilt right now so thank you for that well (laughs) maybe i can coach you along with that and you can coach me along with mine okay great i like it so i love third eye and in part it's an audiobook it's basically a dramatic podcast except done at i think the highest possible level and it hits all the sweet spots for me and ultimately the story works even though this is very comic there are real moments of tenderness there are moments that matter even though the characters are sublimely ridiculous it's true (laughs) that's my favorite thing is comedy that is both very dark, but also somewhere in there is heart. And this oh, this seems you. like, I think Douglas Adams kind of created a science fiction version of that as a brand that after the first one, like, oh yeah, I recognize that. I feel like this isn't the most obvious project out of the gate for companies who 
release this to the public. So can you talk a little bit about this feels like a very professional version of a DIY project. <laughs> Hollywood and traditional publishing would not have said, oh, yes, this is the straightforward thing to do. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I couldn't get this sold as a television series. And it exists because Audible took a chance and was like, yeah, fantasy comedy, because it's a very hard sell. I think Taika Watiti has actually made this tone acceptable in some ways where it wasn't before what we do in the shadows which came out after I actually pitched the show a couple years before that show came out. It opened the door to being a little bit more absurd with genre. Although it's a grand tradition in British comedy, as you mentioned, Douglas Adams, but Faulty Towers and Blackadder and mixing historical genre, Red Dwarf. It certainly isn't unfamiliar to more the UK audience, but for some reason we like our comedy super grounded here and mostly male driven. And yeah, it would not ever have gotten made. I doubt it gets, I don't know, maybe it would be nice if it became a TV show, but even having the proof of concept here where it works, you never know. It is a genre that's kind of tricky in Hollywood. But at the end of the day, I'm just so glad I got to write it. And you're right. I think it was kind of marketed as an audio book, but it really is a TV show for audio. And that was what I intended it. And that's how I wrote it in a screenplay format. But it turned out to be the length of an audio book. And a lot of the marketing around it is more audiobook. So it's a weird world to live in. But again, I wanted to tell the story and I was going to tell it however I could. And I, I really am grateful to be able to do it in this high production level with this amazing cast. Well, if this becomes a TV show or film series, I would be anxious because I feel like I've already had the perfect third eye experience. <laughs> I agree with you. And I think, I it, mean, at least it would be, this would be the version I'm like, I'm very happy with this. If it had to get changed to be adapted to something else, I'm just glad my artistic heart is satisfied it exists this way. So thank you for that. Well, I also think, and I hate to side with Hollywood ever, but I think the special effects that would be required, maybe I just have some anxiety about that. Okay. Yeah. Could this be executed at a level it deserves? with mm -hmm. the budget they would likely give it. And if so, well, then I would be ecstatic. I would be biting my nails because yeah. I, as a fan, I feel like I have now a parasocial relationship with this, this, <laughs> this product. You're invested in the adaptation. I'm I emotionally you invested. As a producer. I appreciate that. I mean, listen, I've been in Hollywood a long time. And part of the reason I actually took time off many years, actually, this took, I pitched this in 2016, I think, at the end of 2015 and 2016. So this is a long gestated process. And I ended up writing it all over COVID. So by the time I started writing this, it was 2019 and COVID just hit. And I basically wrote it all the way over COVID and we recorded it in the fall of 2022. And it's out a year later. So it has been a long process. But at the end of the day, I couldn't let go of this idea that in a way, Harry Potter fails. And what do you do with your life after you fail? I don't even like saying Harry Potter as a comparison because I'm not really a fan of the author's personality right now. But at the same time, <laughs> that was a little bit of an inspiration because you have this chosen one that sort of permeates our fantasy world. And if you subvert that, what does that do? It breaks everything that we've been taught about fantasy. And I just really wanted to see what happened. Well, it also, I think, flips the dynamic of Harry Potter and that, okay, what if Harry Potter at the beginning of that story knew he was supposed to be the chosen one? The reason why he's considered a chosen one is accidental or incidental and he was a baby. There was nothing he did. Yeah, but that's kind of how people raise their children now. It's like you're inherently yes. special and if you exhibit any talent whatsoever in one thing, the parents like jump on it and it's like, well, this is you now. <laughs> 
And it's really hard as a parent not to do that because you want to encourage them and you want to see any advantage that they might have in life. But at the same time, you can't just make them one thing. And I think that was kind of what I wanted to talk about a little bit in that a failed prodigy in a sense, which we have in real life and in fantasy. And that's a very real dynamic because to be excellent at music or dance or usually most of the fine arts, if you don't start very early, before you know you even like it. <laughs> it's true. I started playing the violin at two and a half and I got a scholarship to college. I was very good. I could have definitely been a violinist. I don't know why I became what I did, but I was kind of running away from it because Again, when it becomes your identity and when that defines you, you don't really have the opportunity to grow in any other way. And so that's really what I wanted to talk about, this person finding herself outside of what she's been defined as by every single person around her. One, it requires a certain zen to like the thing that you get paid to do, which is why having more than one thing you do, I think, helps that because when you're yeah. <laughs> frustrated by one thing or you're just, you don't feel open or free to play. That's true then it just becomes as bad of a job as any other job. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I am the expert at turning my hobbies into my profession. If you see the hyphens in my name, you're like, that girl cannot pick a lane. And I'm like, I can't. I don't know if it's ADD or the next projects I have are both stage plays. I'm like, why am I doing this? I don't know, because I haven't done it before. I just have to see. <laughs> I think the phrase is, you're a renaissance woman. Thank you. I like that better than a Jill of all trades, master of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Partly, you arrived on the scene at a time when technology was opening up and opened up avenues for entertainment and art that the professional channels hadn't even, before they knew the industry had changed, the industry had changed. So mm -hmm. the Guild was you taking this thing that had kind of had a very harmful impact on your life, which is a video game addiction dealing with depression while Hollywood made you the nerdy best friend or the nerdy marginal character and everything because... They couldn't figure out what you were great for. And so yeah. it's like, okay, you can swell a progress. You could be part of a team. And eventually you make a web series. And I have to say, I'm just, I didn't play World of Warcraft. I did play Dungeons and Dragons back in the day. And once you bought the books, it was cheap. <laughs> <laughs> back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. The idea that in a three to seven minute time span, you could tell something like a complete story that was also funny and it looks and sounds professional and it was very much DIY and just calling it every favor and oh for sure yeah I mean it was very homegrown but at the end of the day like you said I was really frustrated and I guess it's my ego it's like why can't I be the star <laughs> why can't somebody who looks like me who has my interest be the central focus of a story and I think it's very hard to get Hollywood to see women as anything different than they perceive them and they meaning mostly white men who kind of see women in a certain way and unfortunately there are just not a lot of nerdy advocates for women out there i've tried my best and still there are some people who broke through but at the end of the day it is a revolution in how female characters are being portrayed and i just won't give up i'm just like well you don't want me to star in this you don't want to cast me as someone who actually has a character arc well 
I'll just go make it myself. And that's what happens over and over again. And I love working. I actually have come to the conclusion that as long as I get to tell my stories, I don't even need to be the center of them. I have a graphic novel coming out that has nothing to do with me and I'm growing away from that, but I love to perform. And if I'm not getting the opportunities to do what I really love with Hollywood, I'll just do my own thing on the side and I'll do whatever they'll hire me to do. And the blessing is that because of my writing, I've been able to play some wonderful characters on Supernatural and Eureka and Dr. Horrible. And that is only as a result of my really standing up and saying, here I am, here's a character. And the writer's going, wow, it's something fresh. Let's show the world that because I haven't seen that before. And it hasn't, again, revolutionized anything, but it opened a door for a type of character that hopefully will keep opening the door wider for different female roles to be available out there. I'll be in them, maybe not, but might as well just get that door open for being a little bit different as a woman. And you're a nerd, which I don't know when this started, but it started long before I knew it had started. (laughs) (laughs) And that is so many of the nerd things that I love in this world. I don't know if women or girls just eventually crossed over or if they just stopped hiding that they liked these things? Depends. There's a toxic bro sense of ownership around a lot of this stuff, which I just find so fucking boring. Yes, it's awful and criminal in many cases. (laughs) I don't think I'm saying anything new. Well, I think at the end of the day, I think scientists have proven that if you form an idea about the world, it's very hard to unlearn that world. And so it's very hard for you to change and especially change without feeling like you're being deprived of something that was yours, either your power or your position as a person. And so I think that as society sort of moves on, people get more conservative, especially the older they are, because they think, well, that's not how my world works. Why are you trying to change my world? It worked perfectly well for me. And the wonderful thing is, I think that it's not the nerd geek world has become undermined because there are people who are more diverse, who are interested in it. In fact, I think all of our creativity has gotten more interesting and we're able to tell more varied stories that attract more people and then grown it and allowed more artists to thrive and make livings and tell more stories. So it all helps each other. But again, at the end of the day, some people are still feeling like they're being encroached upon and what they understood the world was like and their position in it is being undermined somehow. And yes, there's a lot of bad behavior, but the best thing to do is just be able to show up and represent and show people that what you love is not disappearing because other people love it now. And that's what I've always tried to do. I had a company called Geek It's Sundry and I was pressured quite strongly to do it, make it a female geek brand early on. And I said, I don't want to do that. I just want to have my brand and be a female leading it. And so that everybody will feel included, but it'll have my voice in it. And my voice tends to be a little bit more me, maybe feminine. I don't, I wouldn't even describe it as that, but it's different from what a typical nerd or geek voice would be. Maybe because of my gender, maybe because of who I am. So I probably would have made a better business decision, making it a little cleaner and saying, this is a female geek brand. But at the end of the day, we made some wonderful things that impacted everybody altogether because at the end of the day that's what we should all be ideally well and this is not just i think a lesson about women taking ownership of their careers and not limiting their vision to just what seems to be available i think this should be true for creatives which is Mm -hmm. okay try and merge the academic term is discourse community try and merge with the profession see what it can do for you but if it doesn't seem interested in the things that you're really passionate about then make your own thing Well, that's the wonderful thing about the times we live in. If we were living in the 80s or 1950s or 100 years ago, nobody 
would be able to tell these stories. And there was no avenue. Yeah, there's self-publishing. There was self-publishing before the internet, but the access to that was so hard for people. We live in a world of plenty now, and it's almost too overwhelming, and people can't get their stories out there, and that's hard. But at the end of the day, you have an avenue to reach one person that you would never have been able to reach before. And it's great, whether it's a TikTok or a web series when those were made, or a novel that you self-publish, or an audio project like I did. They're all sorts of ways to reach people and tell your stories. And that's what really fuels me because yes, it would be great to have a great budget. It would be great to have stars in it. It would be wonderful to pay my friends and not just call them and ask them another favor. (laughs) That would be so cool. I made a lot of stuff and it is still tires me out to ask that. But at the end of the day, I'm making something and it wouldn't get made otherwise. And I know that there are a lot of fans out there who are enjoying Third Eye and having it fill a niche that they would never get on TV. And that's the business I like to be in, telling my own stories like that. Well, so in 1988, I saw ACDC and they fired a cannon off indoors, the, the closing of their show. And my left ear has been ringing ever since. So oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so audiobooks. So for me, there is no quiet ever. Oh, that's just, I'm so sorry. It's not available to me. Well, you've helped by making Third Eye because when I could put the earbuds in and sort of help control the sound going into my head, mm-hmm. for me, a great audiobook is a special experience. And so this one, there are sound effects. When someone's walking away talking, someone is literally walking away from a microphone and... Well, I will say that the company that helped us do all the post-production, Mumble, they are out of San Francisco, and their attention to detail was just stunning. And when I got the post-production schedule, we recorded last October, November, and when I got the post-production schedule that said that we would not turn in final episodes until July, I was like, what are you talking about? I've seen movies with hundreds of special effects get done in less than six months. What is going on? And yet, when we got into it, we definitely need that time. And it was so important to figure out in every scene because especially when you're painting a whole world and with action and magic and physicality, you really can't have any confusion. You have to be super clear on what's going on. You don't want your audience to go out of the story and be like, what? Who's talking? What's going on? Where are they in the room? What room they in? What just happened? Was it a fireball? Who's knowing? It was the biggest learning curve was figuring out how to translate me as a visual writer, because I've written mostly for video, to be communicable in audio form. And the easiest fix was to add Neil Gaiman as the narrator, or just a narrator who happens to be played by Neil Gaiman. That was one part, but that was not all of it. It was really taking every single scene and being like, okay, can a sound effect convey this? Do we need one of the actors to call out what happened in addition to that so no one's confused? How exactly is this being executed? How do we make this feel like this is more active? Can we add a fork tine here in this dinner scene to make this joke work? Every single scene had to be analyzed like that about placement and action and all of that. And it just took so much longer than I thought. On top of soundtrack, which Mumble, again, was incredible at. So I have to say it was a much bigger team and a much bigger effort and a longer process than I ever could have imagined. But the results are phenomenal. Well, thank you. I definitely put four years of work into this. I probably (laughs) shouldn't have. But when I do something, I do it as good as I can. (laughs) Well, as I said at the start. If your name is high up in the credits of anything, I assume it's quality. Oh, I appreciate Um, that. That there's something about either you as a creator or you and the projects that you participate in 
where there's a there there, that it's not simply transactional. Thank you. I originally wrote a pilot for this, just the first half hour. And when I went to turn it into a long form, I was like, whoa, this is seven hours of content. And I'm writing a comedy. And I'm like, how do I get somebody to care about a comedy for seven hours? It's funny in five minute mm -hmm. chunks. It's okay in 22 minute chunks. But how do I build a narrative that takes this very sick commie tone and make a through line that people care about for seven hours? That was really the dig in hard work. I am not an easy writer. There is nothing about my process that is smooth or I'm not pooping out words and just going, oh, there's a screenplay. No, I'm a very <laughs> constipated writer, okay? I have to think about it and I have 8 million things other going on and I don't get to it and then I feel guilty about that. And it's not an easy process, but having the silence of the world shutting down finally deprived me of all the things that usually distract me and made me feel like you got to work on something that means something to get away from what's going on in the world. And so, yeah, it's very interesting tone-wise how you get comedy to sustain over that long. I'm very proud about mostly how the performers and the story got through people through that. Well, for me, the heart, even though a lot of it, it's submerged much of the time. Yeah. Because jokes, because the dramatic humor of just all of these characters. So this was something I learned writing a comic novel, which is I had these dramatic elements. And then my peers in workshop said, your main character is risking his life. Maybe his friends shouldn't be telling jokes. And then I thought, oh, I'll be damned. Okay. Oh, you care about the story in the story. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit more about the story in the story and the elements that the serious structure that's at play? Because despite how ridiculous these characters are, ultimately, this is a story that matters. Yeah, that's funny that you say that because the hardest process and the last process in the dialogue editing was me cutting out jokes that seemed to undermine. Mm -hmm. So main character who passes away, I don't want to give any spoilers, but being able to have the character's relationship and people's reaction to that death be genuine was really hard. And I ended up lifting a lot of jokes and a lot of lines because I was like, you know what? I don't think she'd joke right now. And being able to really make those impacts work. And when I was outlining, I got to outline all 10 episodes as one. And that's funny because the six seasons I wrote The Gill, which was over seven years, that is about the same amount I wrote for this third eye. So <laughs> it was a lot to take on at once. But it also is a privilege in that you can really craft an arc that is consistent and you could track. And for me, it was all about the relationships. And it was specifically about Laurel and Kate, the young girl who comes into the failure's life, Laurel, who I play, and being able to track their relationship. And sometimes it was a little bit of plot that would put a twist in the relationship. But most of the time, it was their flaws, and especially Laurel's flaw, that would force a problem to happen. And I did that with all of the arcs between Frank and Tracy, which is another kind of pairing that happens in the show a little bit later in the season. Frank the vampire and a woman so weird, he falls in love with her. Yeah, she's so gothic and antiquated that he falls in love with her. And then we have Sybil and Robigus played by Will Wheaton and Sybil played by London Hughes, a hilarious comic. They have sort of a very weird relationship of on and off again because he's a bad guy and Sybil is my best friend and he torments me. So it's a little bit awkward, but really I think you could have taken my outline and written 
a drama from the outline. But unfortunately, my tone of voice is always a little absurd and a little broad. And when Jonah Ray, who actually is in Mystery Science Theater, who directed me there, starred in it, and also he voice directed it, he read it and he was like, this is the most Felicia thing I've ever read. And it's like, thank you, because it really is the tone of what I write. But again, if you took just the bare beats that I had done outline-wise, you could have written a dramatic version of it, mm -hmm. and it would totally work. And I think that was really an interesting discovery on my part, that story and character are going to be consistent throughout any kind of tone. And it's a different thing to consider. Yeah. Just to go back to a point you made earlier, Neil Gaiman's tone as, I don't want to say arch Brit because he's not arch, but he can put on some smarm so oh, that he could say so, something. Yes. <laughs> he could read something like, and this is a quote, pause for some world building gobbledygook. <laughs> And then he can explain something about the fantasy world of the story. And the joke is the introduction to that section, not what he's actually telling you about this world. Yeah. Well, he's very snarky. And I think that's why there was some talk back and forth about, do we say narrated by Neil Gaiman? But we came to the conclusion that he's not narrating anything. He is the narrator. He is playing a character. Yes. And as you get deeper and deeper into the story, he begins more snarky and more self-aware and a little bit bitchy toward the writer. <laughs> actually, he did a lot of really cool improv. Some of it did actually end up in here. And then some of it I cut out because it got really mean toward me. You know, not mean, but it got very snarky. And I was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that he's a brilliant actor. And the fact that he agreed to do this was the biggest compliment in my life. I will never have one to top it. And he's one of the nicest people you've ever met as well. So I don't know how you have the triumvirate of being attractive, the most talented human on earth and being lovely. I don't know. It's too much in one person. I think if the narrator were American, it's possible you could get something like that effect. But uh, yeah, maybe like he's Viola just so Davis damn charming. or somebody. He's so charming and he has gravitas and charm, which is hard. And of course, he was my ideal person, but you never know if you're going to get them or not. Again, a favor that should not be given. <laughs> but, but his snark doesn't have a tone. It's just him yeah. speaking mellifluously, which means your brain then has to lean in. Mm -hmm. And so driving around listening to this, if I accidentally hit the radio and listen to an American commercial, which I believe they're written for people who have experienced brain damage, <laughs> it's such a shock. So for me, Third yeah, Eye was he, such a wonderful world to inhabit. And Oh, thank you. It was very funny because he has a very, I mean, he's a professional. He reads a mm -hmm. lot and he has a tone and a pace that's slower than the action because we're all very frenetic. Yeah high energy people and the wonderful thing is that neil between scenes he'll introduce a scene and then we have a, a sequence of people being completely frenetic and he just calms the pace down so it doesn't feel we're running the whole time we're just running between scenes and it really makes the piece as far as pace goes and that's purely a performance thing without him performing i don't know if i would have made it through seven hours of people being such high stakes going on but he really just brings it down to a level where you just settle in and get ready for another roller coaster. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about what it's like to write for Mystery Science Theater and what 
that experience has been like. By the way, I might be the world's foremost academic expert on mystery science theater, just in case you didn't know how cool I am. I did not know, I've but I published that an article on mystery science theater as a postmodern allegory for media consciousness. Wow, that's amazing. I think that MST3K is the predecessor to the internet. I remember watching it as a child with my brother. It's the one thing that we could agree on that we wanted to watch on television. And there was the breaking of the fourth wall of Joel talking to us as an audience and then also reading letters at the end mm -hmm. was like the coolest thing that I had ever seen on television. And that intimate relationship he had talking to the audience, which you just didn't see in a sort of comedic scripted ish format. It just was For so adults, fresh. No, that felt like, and to some degree, some kids were watching. But yeah, it was mostly it, adults, but I was watching when I was eight because my mom didn't care what we did. But <laughs> <laughs> it was like, the TV's on, you're good. So I can't even tell you what a dream it is to be able to write and act in the show. The only reason I'm on the show is that I saw Joel at a convention in the green room and I went up to take a selfie with him just to rub it in my brother's face and then cut to <laughs> him asking me to be Kinga and then getting my brother and me to co-write on a couple of episodes. It was a dream come true for both of us. And it's a lot harder than you could imagine because I'm sure everybody who watches a movie has a couple snarky comments. God bless you. You're not ready for MST3K because I thought I was as well. But when you're required to write at least a joke every 10 seconds in a movie, yeah. it is so hard, especially when there's minutes long sequences of people just swimming. It really tests your cleverness in a way that I admire some of the writers on that show so much. And I can't believe Joel, he's just brilliant in every way, but just to sustain a show like that for so long is just incredible. And the show is better or funnier. I've seen the Netflix versions and when they toured it live, I went to see it live and I was just, mm -hmm. it never stopped being hilarious. Does everyone watch it together and just- Oh, as far as the writing jokes? process, yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, Joel and Matt and a couple of other people go through all the stuff that everybody has pit, but it's actually a very scientific process. For the first season for Netflix, we all did remote writing and we would just send in our riffs. I think Joel and his team went through all the riffs. They'd go every five minute chunk and they'd see all the jokes pitched and be like that one, that one, that one. So I can't imagine. For last season, we did writing rooms. So Jonah was the showrunner running the room for the ones that I did. And we would have eight or nine writers and every day we do another 10 minutes and you bring all your jokes and you just raise your hand on zoom when you had a joke and they'd be like hey pitch it out and it was so nerve-wracking because you don't know if your joke is going to hit or if it's funny <laughs> and you kind of don't want to pitch something you, and you hear all these other brilliant jokes and other people know how to do references i never do references that are good and that's the bread and butter of mst3k's i would feel intimidated but then I have video game references that a couple other people would laugh at. I'm like, yes. So it, it was never a competitive environment. It was very additive and very fun together. And then at the end of the day, some of the producers would go, we would produce our 10 minutes. So we'd look at a 10 minutes and be like, oh, or 15. And we'd be like, okay, these are the jokes that hit the most and we'll put them in the thing. But then at the end of the day, again, Joel and his team would go through and be like, I don't know if I love that one that the producers picked. I want to see what else everybody came up with. So that's essentially how it worked. And it's a fine magic process that they've really honed down. And I really hope we get to do more seasons going forward. Mystery Science Theater does also seem like a forerunner to DIY entertainment. For sure. The way it started, the puppets were so crude at first. It almost didn't matter because I think of the how... latest, yeah, I think the latest season is the best because 
it was a lot more low budget than the Netflix version, but at the same time, it just felt more MST3K. Like we're just showing up, putting on a show in our houses. That's what I love about it. And it also, you know, the self-awareness of it makes you be self-aware of the production of the show, but also the movies that we're looking at. It's this meta thing. Well, and it made me feel like the thousands of hours of awful television viewing that I had done in my life somehow had some sort of dividend to pay as jokes that I could then respond to, even though everyone's life would be better if no one knew these references, or <laughs> most of them anyway. Yeah. Um, but the show's kind of an antidote to what just happens ordinarily with television, or at least what happened with television up until the 90s. If you look, it's still here. It's never yeah. gone away, but it was all the TV that was available at the time. Mm -hmm. was, was yeah. Just mostly I mean, mind crushing. It, it makes you be aware of what you're being fed and makes the average viewer more savvy as to what filmmaking, how it works. And in a way, you're not being mean. That's what I love about Joel is it's not mean spirited. How anyone gets a movie made is just beyond me. It is so hard. Anything that gets on a screen should be, yeah, you did it, man, because the agony <laughs> that it takes. But it also, it's a gentle humor of making fun of like, wow, that was not good. <laughs> <laughs> You're not trying to shame anybody. And I think that's a fine line. And that kind of gentle humor, I think if you look at just humor in general, it's not as kind as it used to be. I don't know, maybe it was always put down snarky, terrible humor, but it doesn't have a kindness underneath it. And I think that feels old fashioned. But at the end of the day, it's what I love. It's what Joel loves. And it's clever. And I think we deserve clever things. Well, I think back to, they were watching some Christmas movie, probably Santa Claus versus the Martians. And mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. did a segment where they were doing presentations about Christmas past or something. And they were all so ugly and negative. And Joel was, here's what Christmas parties were like in the 70s and secretaries all but being assaulted at Christmas parties. And, <laughs> and the robots were just as bad. But Gypsy was there and Gypsy hadn't said anything. And they go, all right, Gypsy, what do you have? And she just opened her mouth and she had a nativity set in her mouth and music Aww. starts playing. It's a great trick because it's, yeah, she had the nativity set in her mouth the whole time. Of course. But the character who's the least vocal um, yeah, that's beautiful. actually that's beautiful. had mm -hmm. something so simple and it's like, it got me. And I think that was the point is when their aggressions and sense of frustration got too much at watching these movies. Yeah. Uh, well, it is bad. I will tell you that I had to riff on munchies and it was probably the worst experience of my life. <laughs> I almost was like, I'm never writing for this show again. I'm just going to be an actor because it truly was. Dom DeLuise is one of the worst performers and God bless his corpse. But man, there's something about him that I just could not stand. It was like they just let him improv for like four hours and just put anything on screen. And it was so dated and just hard to riff because it's very hard to riff a comedy. Yeah. Because it's just you can't do it. And this Munchies was a comedy. So Dom DeLuise not only being Dom DeLuise, but just being a comedy. He's doing the self-aware stuff in the movie, so how we do self-aware stuff. So it was very challenging. Again, yeah, I have to be like, what movie are you going to put me on? I don't <laughs> want to have another munchy situation. So I wonder if being an actor and a writer makes you think differently about each lane. For sure. I think I have a hard time getting my writer hat off when I'm acting and I think it's been a, a process to be, hey, what would I do with this versus, oh, let me look and see what the writer intended me to do. And I think it's important to honor the source material, but 
unless I'm bringing something to the role that nobody else is bringing, why am I doing it? So I think that's really important. And certainly all my writing is character motivated. And I always put myself in the character's shoes. And I always think about what would be a fun thing to see this person struggle with, or how do I want to see them navigate through life? Or what do I want to throw at this person? And I think the for me, for example, Game of Thrones, the last episode, we're all so mad at it because the characters didn't act like we thought they should. And I think we were all as a quorum, what? What happened here? Because it feels like the characters are acting completely differently than they have been established. And I think that really bothers us as people because we're there for the characters. So thinking like the character, even if it's one line, make sure that that's an authentic reaction that that person would have. I think that really helps as a writer. Yeah, well, after the battle with the Night King, Jon Snow gives an inspirational military speech, which he's the last character who would ever do that. And no, then I the, know. the woman who wanted to rule the world quietly let the man talk to no, inspire was- the army. And it's like, I don't mind a surprise and characters can surprise, but that's just default to... It's not what the character would do. If I were an actor, I'd be like, what are we doing here? I'm sure they did. <laughs> There's no decision tree that would ever lead those characters to those choices. I've sympathized because again, you have to end the series. You have to get characters to a certain place and they just had to skip 15 steps to get there. Maybe that's the ending that George intends. I don't know. We don't know until we see it, but certainly it didn't organically get to that place and characters can change, but you can't violate them or we're all just like, why are we here? Yeah. So whatever. I think for me, the one positive out of that is, yeah, George actually got to see that play out and go, now we can, all right, that probably is not the ending. So let me. Yeah, no, he, he has the advantage of they demoed <laughs> that. Didn't really work. So yeah, I can't wait to see how we get there. So you say writing is always a struggle. And I think that's for anything longer. I think that's usually the case unless someone is churning out very formulaic stuff. If you're writing about whatever you're interested in and you're likely to be passionate about, it's going to bring new challenges to you, which means you have to learn how to become a new writer every time. Does that resonate with you? I seem to forget everything every time I pick up a pen, but my schedule, I have a child. I travel a lot for work. I act. I do gaming. I don't ever stay on track and methodology enough to get a consistent workflow going. And that is to my detriment, because I do have other stories that will never be told because I just can't sit my butt in the chair. But at the end of the day, at a certain point, I think, yeah, you got to have a plan. But I think what held me back for a long time is reading a lot of screenplay, listening to how other writers work and not being able to work like that, not being able to wrap my brain around that methodology. And then figuring out, oh, I'm a messy writer. I can't sit down and have it all planned out before I start writing. I have to have an idea and then sort of noodle around to that point and they'll be like, I gotta back out and I gotta figure out where I'm going. And it's more as a video game analogy, a fog of war. I gotta go into the area and kind of like (laughs) uncover a little bit and then figure out where to go after that. But I have to get there because I can't just plan it. So again, to the detriment of my productivity and certainly as my being a professional writer, you can't do that. And I also have such a rebellion against tropes and anything that I've seen before. I think screenwriters are very adept at being like, hey, there's that scene in Firefly where they did this or there was that scene in Rocky or Jedi or whatever. They have such a vernacular of just being able to lift a moment from another pre-existing piece and put it and solve a problem. I literally can't bring myself to do that. First of all, I don't remember things like well. And then second of all, if somebody's done it before, of course, I don't want to do it. It's just this negative 
oppositional thing I have, and it certainly doesn't help me, but it gets the stories out the way I want them. And as long as I'm just doing it on the side where I don't have the pressure of having to produce television every week, I'm fine with it. I think at the end of the day, you have to understand what kind of person you are and how you write and what process maximizes your enjoyment in a sort of painful process. Well, I have experienced creative people who produce work that I like, and then I see, oh, and this one was rushed. Clearly, the deadlines got the better of the quality. Yeah. I'm going to pause it. Maybe you shouldn't feel guilty because your process works for you. And anytime your name is prominently on a project, I've always been excited by experiencing whatever that project is. So, Oh, that makes a lot. That is a big compliment. Again, I kind of have figured out that I'm more like a sculptor than anything. I get an idea or and usually, especially a character like, you know, Laurel, the failed chosen one. And I start chipping away at the idea, the tree or the piece of marble. And I'm like, well, does this need to go here? Oh no, let me go to the backside, chip away there. Let me do a little chipping here. And again, I wish I could produce more, but I have to have it so perfect before I show it to anybody. Again, that's to my detriment. It would be very good for me to be in a writer's group and show people ugly work and be willing to write ugly and that's something i'm just trying to train myself to do but at the end of the day i have to have it like a little jewel box like here you go <laughs> it's been four years well so far i think it's working out and i, well, thank I you. do think there's something to be said for creative people who i hear from them when they have something important to say yes rather than, as long as oh. i can pay my bills in between i'll take as long <laughs> as i need to <laughs> unfortunately that concern i have no advice for Thank you. That's why I act and do lots of other things, right? To subsidize my jewel box writing technique. <laughs> and I think the social aspects of being creative is also, for me, I find it surprisingly important. Like mm -hmm. 20 years ago, I don't think I would have imagined how important having other people creating alongside me and sometimes collaborating, but just getting out of my head sometimes. No, for sure. I've yet to write a novel that's not nonfiction. That's my next goal after I do these stage play things. Right now I'm working on a graphic novel and just seeing some of the thumbnails come back and I'm like, oh, that's better than I thought it was gonna be. And also having Neil or Will perform a line in a way that I never expected. The collaborative part of filmmaking, as long as I'm in charge of my own stuff, is such a joy because everybody additively makes it better. That is the show for this week. I would like to thank Felicia Day, Andrea Higgins, Talan Kavjian, and Isaiah Pertillo for editing this episode. Don't forget to check out thedrunkenodyssey.com throughout the week for all kinds of great written content, including perfect advice from Dr. Perfect, heartbreaking comic book reviews by Drew Barth, and reviews of cinematic masterpieces by your own curator of schlock, Jeff Schuster. It looks like in the new year, there will be two new blogs debuting. If you do have comments, questions, qualms, confessions to make, the email address here is thedrunkenodyssey at gmail.com. May you have an unsick holiday that meets a reasonable amount of your requirements. Until next time, put your ass in the chair, keep attacking those keys, and don't swallow the worm. Thank you for listening to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. This is your announcer, Lauren Butler.